Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. This is a podcast that focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. I'm Andrea Litt, and I'll be your host for today's podcast episode. Today, I'm here with Nate Bowersock, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Nate, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Very good. Excellent. So let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, originally I'm from Portage, Michigan, which is located in southwest Michigan, uh, right next to Kalamazoo, which is more well-known compared to Portage. (laughs) Uh, Moved around actually a little as a kid, um, first born in Tennessee, but moved to Michigan eventually and and then uh, went to Michigan Tech University um, in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and got a degree in uh, wildlife ecology and management in 2008. And after I finished my degree, I got a job right out of school uh, in Yellowstone National Park working with river otters and just got hooked on the, the Mountain West and didn't really leave. So, you know, fast forward 10 years, I'm, I'm still here. And now you're a graduate student here. So can you tell us a little bit about that that 10-year period you just fast-forwarded through? Yeah. So after uh, working with river otters, I transitioned to a job working with elk and wolves just outside of Yellowstone in Cody, Wyoming, and then moved back to Yellowstone and started working for the Yellowstone Wolf Project and worked for them for almost five years. And in between, worked for the bird office in Yellowstone. And then the last five or so years, uh, in my during the time I worked in Yellowstone, I was working for the bear management office, working with black bears and grizzly bears. And if, when students come to me, particularly terrestrial-oriented <laughs> students, they usually tell me they want to work on wolves, grizzly bears, and often someplace in the West. So you clearly have had the... Dream, the dream uh, set of positions over the last decade, working in an amazing park on an amazing giant uh, charismatic megafauna, some would say. And what did you do to set yourself up to get, have those opportunities? Well, a lot of it was just really applying myself to this field. I, I think the biggest thing, though, was uh, one of the reasons I went to Michigan Tech was they offer incoming students uh, research assistantships, so, which means you can talk to a professor that's doing research and, and potentially work for them. And so when I started, I actually started with the IRL Wolf Moose Project. And from day one, uh, I started working for them. And pretty much throughout my whole undergrad career, I had this amazing experience to work with wolves and moose. And then I also had a great mentor in Dr. Rolf Peterson, who led the, the program at the time, and, and his uh, co-researchers, John and Leah Vucetich. And, and they, were, they gave me really good guidance in how I should go about this field, which was you know, applying for field positions and getting involved with research and the wildlife society and, you know, the culmination, all these things, uh, led me really down a great path that got me a lot of really good experience over time. And this was all during your undergraduate experience, which is pretty impressive given that not everybody (laughs) has research opportunities, much less in an iconic place like Isle Royale and working on wolves and moose. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, one of the cool things too, is that the, uh, when wolves are reintroduced to Yellowstone, 
a lot of the research was based off of the predator-prey relation studies from iRoyal. And Doug Smith was actually a grad student of Rolf Peterson's, uh, yeah, I think in the 80s. And I actually wore Doug's pack when I did my own research on iRoyal. And Doug currently working in Yellowstone. Yeah, and and who I worked for uh, several years ago now. So it sounds like you've had um, some opportunities being in the places that you were, being at the, inst- the undergraduate institution you were, had some great programs, and then having some people that were instrumental in your in your development. Is that what you would say got you into conservation, or are there experiences or additional people that you think were instrumental in getting you to this place? Yeah, like I said, uh, originally was born in Tennessee, and that was a place um, my dad was doing his PhD at University of Tennessee, and to get away from town, my parents would throw me in a backpack and take me into the the Great Smoky Mountains or Great Smoky National Park. And and so I have a lot of memories. Even as I was growing up, we would go back after we left Tennessee and uh, we'd visit the park, go for hikes, flip over rocks, look for salamanders, uh, go to the the annual wildflower festivals. So I have a lot of fond memories of hiking and, you know, just that's where I felt most comfortable was in the outdoors. And and then we also did a lot of birding and watching, you know, wildlife, you know, throughout the park. And that, you know, that was a very, that's what I enjoyed the most. And, and then eventually um, that was kind of all our vacations was go to national parks and explore the terrain. And the biggest trip was we actually came out here. We came out to Yellowstone, Teton area when I think I was 16 and that trip, just seeing wolves and bears and bison and elk and seeing them all in one place. And then talking to um, park rangers and researchers and finding out that that's actually a job that was that was seemed awesome to me and so that's I feel really fortunate because I f- knew that's what I wanted to do from day one and figured out how to do that which I think a lot of people don't get that. Yeah, I definitely didn't realize that you could do what we do for a job. I thought that my options were park ranger or veterinarian or something like that. So that's great that you figured that out reasonably reasonably early. Um, what, it sounds like there were some opportunities that stacked themselves up one after another, the way you describe it. I'm mm-hmm. guessing it probably wasn't like that. And maybe there were some hurdles or struggles along the way. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it was just easy breezy and doors just open wide for you. Well, I think in my, at least my working career that I, I, I don't know how I, I got through it so easily. I think just the really apply myself really I think when talking to employers after they hired me they said you know the thing that was most impressive was how I applied myself from so early and I just racked up all these experiences right away which is just crazy to reflect on it now um so I think career-wise I was you know I was fortunate to land jobs fairly quickly which is not common I know my wife definitely she does does wildlife work herself and she definitely struggled and she had almost as ex- as much experience as I did, but um, I think I just got really lucky career-wise. I think the biggest hurdle, though, I had was, um, you know, expanding my career, which was trying to get a graduate degree, and uh, I didn't have the greatest grades in my undergrad because um, I was, you know, I was getting to play a lot in the outdoors, and so I put more time in the classes I liked and the classes I didn't like. I didn't put as much time in, which... Um, I think kind of hurt some of my opportunities to get graduate positions. Um, but with that said, I, you know, I did spend a lot of time working in the field, got a little, a lot of really great experiences. And I think through all my hard work and um, showing how 
you know, dedicated I am to this field, you know, I had other individuals in this field, um, you know, invest in me and were willing to help me try to get into to school to, you know, and maybe skirt around the, the lower grades to find other means to get me into school, which was, um, you know, te- getting really good test scores to get into graduate school versus using my GPA. Right. So um, when I said easy breezy before, that's, <laughs> that's sort of credit, um, not giving you the credit you deserve. Clearly, it was through a product of, of lots of hard work, but perhaps in a slightly different way than maybe is, is traditional. Um, and if you had to give some advice to yourself back at those times when you weren't doing so well in your courses, and maybe when at the times when you were thinking that you were unsure whether the grad school thing would happen, um, I'm sure there's other budding wildlife biologists out there listening that maybe would benefit from from some advice that you could give to them about those those periods. Yeah, I think uh, you know. When you're taking classes, you're not excited about, you know, uh, someone higher up is, is having you take those classes for a reason. And so even though you may think they're stupid, you know, it's, you still got to put the time into them. And so that's, that's important because, you know, everyone wants to do this job and I had a mountain of experience, which was great, but not everyone's going to have that. And you need to have a competitive edge and even something simple of just putting a little extra effort into, the classes you don't like to get you a slightly better GPA could really make the difference at the end of the day. So I definitely say really the classes that you hate are probably the ones you want to put the most effort into because those are the ones your grades are probably going to suffer the most. And hopefully the people that are telling you to take those classes have some insights (laughs) that they're not just uh, hurdles to jump through. Exactly. You took a fair bit of time off, as you mentioned, you said there was an eight to 10 year period there where you were doing field work and now you're back in school. Have there been hurdles with that transition or do you think that time was beneficial for you as you returned? Uh, I think a little of both. I mean, there, there were definitely some hurdles to go through for sure. I mean, being out of school for so long and, you know, eight years, there's a lot of things in school now that we never even were talking about some of the programs such as um, program R, which is kind of the basis of all our statistical analysis we're doing now. The computer program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't even, I didn't never even heard of that when I was in my undergrad or just getting back in that mindset definitely was um, something I had to work at for a, a little while there. Cause I was just so used to just doing the grunt work of hiking all over the place, which is great. I mean, I, I think, I think it's important if you're not sure where you want to go in this field to take some time off and get a feel for what's out there before you go back to school. And I think that was definitely beneficial to allow me to grow as an individual. Um, eight years, you know, now that I reflect on it, maybe maybe would have liked to have come back a little earlier. But, um, you know, in the long run, I really don't regret it, though. Well, let's talk a little bit about your research since we've been talking about school. <laughs> let's talk about the, the fun outside portion of, of that school aspect. So tell me about your research and where you are in the, in the process. Yeah, so I'm entering the third year of uh, my master's degree that I'm working on. Uh, the focus of the study is uh, resource selection and population abundant estimates of black bears and Yellowstone's northern range which the northern range is the northern third of the park and you'll break those other parts down for us yeah and so yeah being more specific though uh we want to better understand you know what 
affects the size of a bear's home range in Yellowstone. So how, what kind of area does a bear roam when they're on the northern range? And then within their home range, we want to understand what resources, so what foods are they looking for to keep them in those areas. And then we more, and we also want to know how many animals are there. We, we really don't have a great estimate of black bears in, in Yellowstone. Um, the last studies were done in the 1960s and 70s, and, um, and there's been a lot of changes since then, uh, such as grizzly bear numbers have increased from you know, barely a couple hundred to now we have well over 700 grizzly bears. Um, wolves have been reintroduced to the ecosystem. Uh, some of the major foods, such as white bark pine, has seen some fluctuations. So these are factors that um, we we suspect might have impacted the black bear population. But since we don't even have a whole lot of base information, it would be really good now to get some of that information um, for us to look at for in, for future studies. There's been a lot of focus on grizzly bears in the park in Yellowstone. <laughs> And you're specifically focused on black bears, so filling that information gap. Can you talk a little bit about the northern range for, for our listeners who maybe haven't spent a lot as much time in Yellowstone as you have, which is probably most people, and how, <laughs> what makes the northern range maybe an important place to, to do this work compared to another part of Yellowstone? Yeah, so, you know, I feel really fortunate. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, grad students that, that do studies, they come into their program and they don't really know their study areas. They have to learn as they go, but Northern Ranges have kind of been home for me for the last eight years. And so, um, yes, I, I definitely take assumptions. Everyone knows it, but they don't. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the Northern Range is, um, essentially the, the elk wintering grounds for, uh, both the residential and migratory elk herds in the region. It's also at the lower elevations of the park. So we, we estimate that when climate change can, or as climate change, I should say, uh, continues to affect the ecosystem, we ex- we expect to see those impacts in, at those elevations first before they hit the upper elevations. But more importantly, the northern range it has some of the highest densities of ungulate species, so elk and deer, bison, but also ungu- uh, predator populations. I think I heard one um, one study say that the predator densities in on the Northern range are the highest in North America, if not the world. So, uh, the number of weasels and canids and felids that we have, it's, it's very impressive for that region. So, um, there's been a lot of research done on the elk and wolves and bison in this region, but the bears very little. So we want to understand, you know, what role do the bears play in, in this, this system, um, that really hasn't been looked into, um, in the past. You mentioned these two aspects of your project, one um, about where the bears are spending their time and what foods and other resources they might need, and then the other aspect being the abundance of black bears in the northern range. Can you tell us a little bit about the methods, the tools that you use to answer those questions and get the data you need? Yeah, so to get at the home range and resource selection questions, uh, what we did was we, we trapped a number of black bears and we put GPS collars on them. And these collars have the ability to take a GPS point uh, once every hour from April to November when we expect the, bear, the bears to be most active. And then we could assess where the bears were going from these locations, to, which would help us answer that those first two questions. And then the, the third question, the population abundance and density, we're, we're doing a technique called non-invasive mark recapture. So essentially this means we're finding a way that we can mark or 
sample these animals without actually touching them, which a lot of studies that do mark recapture have to do is physically capture them and mark them. And how we do this is collect their hair through two methods, which is one's through hair snares, which are these barbed wire enclosures we set up by wrapping barbed wire around trees and making a little corral, essentially, and then putting smelly stuff in the middle, such as uh, we used two commercial baits, which one smelled like smoky bacon and mm. one was raspberry donut, which smelled more like Kool-Aid, but were very pleasant. Um, and then we also used two stinkier, more natural smells. So we used rotten cow's blood and a rotting fish oil cow's blood mix that uh, were not so pleasant. And we were carrying these on our backs and our packs. So we were probably just pulling all the bears in the area. Uh, but the hope was to that the bears would smell these these different scents and, and would then crawl over the barbed wire we set up and pull their hair out and then we could send it off for DNA analysis. You said they were in an enclosure, um, but it's more just um, having an area with barbed wire surrounding it so that the bears can easily move in and out, just leaving their hair behind. Yes, yes, and that's very important. We don't want to trap them by any means. We just want, want them to leave their hair, so we just make a, an easy little hair trap as it's called and the other method is using rub trees so it's been found that bears rub on trees as maybe a means of communication and also means they leave hair behind when they rub on these trees so we hiked throughout our study area and found uh, around 217 of these trees we tacked up a little barbed wire to increase the chances we would uh, get hair and and then we check the these uh, the snares and the rub trees on a weekly if by or um, biweekly basis, and uh, and then look to see if the the bears left hair behind. And then we put them in little envelopes, and we're sending them off to a DNA lab in Canada to to try to help us ID how many bears we have. And the technology that's available these days is really pretty amazing to have locations sent up to a satellite that you can retrieve from your desk. And to have hairs that you can figure out how many different individuals you've got roaming around is is pretty impressive tools at our fingertips. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. So tell us what why your research is really important. So like I said earlier, uh, black bears really have been studied in Yellowstone National Park a whole lot. Um, In the 1960s and 70s, there were two researchers that tried to get at this question of how many bears are in black bears there are in Yellowstone, but uh, some of the methods they use, uh, you know, just we can't really standardize now. And so the estimates some have suggested are we're we're overestimating the population. And there was one other study done around the lake ecosystem, but that once again was a very specific area in the park that probably doesn't represent the rest of the park very well. So a little bit farther south from where you're, you're doing your work. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, you know, it's we need to figure out where you know how many bears there are on the northern range, um, mainly because uh, you know bears play a major role in a number of other ecosystems. They can impact how many ungulates there are in the landscape because they can be very efficient predators. People don't think of black bears being predators, but you know they they're omnivores. They do eat meat, and they can actually have an impact on ungulate populations. But also, they coexist with grizzly bears. And in some regions, we've actually seen evidence of black bears out-competing grizzly bears for resources when there aren't many ungulates around and more um, vegetative foods available. The smaller body size of black bears can actually result in um, 
being able to outcompete grizzly bears. And what would be the most interesting or most exciting thing you could find in the end when you complete your work? So I think one of the, the things I would really like to figure out is are black bears actively seeking out ungulate neon ungulate calves to feed on there's been some studies that has suggested that they opportunistically hunt elk calves and and deer fawns which is when they're feeding on grass they just when they stumble upon these animals they'll they'll kill them and eat them but other studies have suggested bears remember where they find these animals and they show up to the same place every spring to find this this food source so i think it'd be really cool to answer that question for yellowstone especially on the northern range Hmm. where elk population studies are really big right now. That's really interesting. Um, how do you think the result, the answer to that question would affect how bears are, are um, conserved or managed in, in Yellowstone? Do you think it would change anything or just be an interesting finding? I think within the park, it wouldn't change management a whole lot. Uh, you know, the national parks are more about preserving the landscape for the animals, but I think it would have implications for outside of the park, though. Um, we're seeing the grizzly bear populations expanding. There's a hunt potentially on the way here. And so if we can show that the black bears are impacting ungulate populations just as much as grizzly bears, that, that might have implications on changing how we regulate bear hunts in, in the area. Mm. Very interesting work. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us about your work. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the wild card question. And that is, what's your favorite animal or what is your favorite plant? And we'll allow you to pick one of each if if you want to. (laughs) Well, going to school in the Upper Peninsula and and being more of a northern ecosystem person, I think um, my favorite animal might have to be the northern shrike oh, so, he's going he's going bird going Whoa. birds here birds are you know a side passion of mine <laughs> uh shrikes are really cool animals though they're in my mind kind of a songbird predator prey hybrid so they have they're a, an animal that can actually imitate other animals calls so other birds calls and so they actually will sit on a perch and imitate their prey's calls and then as birds come into to investigate what these calls are they'll swoop down and try to grab them but their feet aren't as developed as say a a hawk or an eagle and so they have to figure out a way to to restrain their their prey so they tend to spear them on thorns or broken branches or barbed wire which i think is super cool man that's rough (laughs) yeah and then they use their razor sharp bills to then rip their prey open so they have these raptor-like bills and then these the, the vocal cords of a songbird. So I think they're really cool. That's a, that's a great answer. Yeah. And what about a plant? And Do you have a plant, favorite plant? Favorite plant to go with the northern theme. I really like tamarack trees or, or larch, as some people might call them. So they're one of the few deciduous conifer trees. You like these hybrids of like characteristics of multiple things. Exactly. No, it, it fascinates me. So tamarack trees um, grow fresh needles every year. And so they're kind of a bright green colored conifer tree you'll find in swampy areas. And then in the fall, their needles will actually change to like a, a neon green color or orange. And then when the, the needles are ready to fall, you'll have like one or two fall and then all the rest of the needles will fall all at once. It's it's a crazy phenomenon. And then it's just this stick thing sticking out of the <laughs> ground. It's kind of bizarre with a pile of needles. And 
And then the next spring, it'll get green again and start all over. Well, two great answers. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to, to visit with us today and share some information about your background and, and your work. And I really wish you the best of luck as you wrap things up at uh, Montana State. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. And to everybody else out there, thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. Please share this podcast with those that you think would be interested in hearing all about theirs or other things. 